Thank you, Parker and choir and instrumentalists for our beautiful worship today. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 18. Psalm 18. I won't do this every week, but I do have some good news. If you weren't here last week, you'll have to go to firstamerald.org and see what this is all about. But look at there. You scoffers. Be, be careful about investing in tomatoes. They have dropped from $80 per piece of fruit to $8.88 per piece of fruit. How big is a God that you worship? Is he powerful enough to save? Is he swift enough to rescue? Can he overturn your enemies and their evil schemes? Can he cause the earth to shake and the mountains to tremble? Does smoke blow forth from his nostrils and fire leap from his lips when he speaks? Can he fly upon the wings of the wind? Quite candidly, if we are guilty of anything, we're guilty of being the people of a small and shrinking God. Oh, I think we're afraid to let God be who God really is because he might be, therefore, too big to manage and control and manipulate and to reshape into our own image. The reality is, God is who God is Regardless of how much of him we understand, God will not be formed. He will not be shaped. He will not be manipulated by our hands or our head. The God of Song 18 is the God of David. And the God of David we'll see this morning is a really big God, a tremendous God, a fearsome God, a rescuing God, a saving God. Let's take a look. In Psalm 18, David has both the presence and the protection of Yahweh. We hear David in this song, he cries out, he sings out. He takes comfort in the fact that his God has not abandoned him in his sorrow. He's not left David in his suffering. But God is present and real. David's rock and David's shield. God is there to protect. Now this psalm is repeated in 2 Samuel 22, almost word for word. And as the song is repeated in 2 Samuel 22, we hear these words to describe the setting of the song we stay this morning. There the writer describes, David spoke these words, meaning Psalm 18, to the Lord in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David sings these words after God has delivered him from his enemies. Most specifically, God has let him go, get away from Saul. 
You remember the narrative. God had rejected the first king, Saul, because of his disobedience. And in his place, Samuel had anointed the little shepherd boy, David, the least of the sons of Jesse. David, the shepherd boy, David, the musician, David, the giant slayer. The logical line of succession would be Saul's son, Jonathan, of course. But David and Jonathan became the the best friends. Their hearts were knit together. And not only was there a friendship, but Jonathan could see that God had his hand on David and God had selected David to follow his father. So Jonathan pledged his loyalty and covenant to David. Now Saul's a good example. When you sit on the throne as king... You sit nervously. He was always looking over his shoulder to see who might be coming from behind. Now, David, to his credit, never did anything to try to usurp Saul's authority, for Saul to David was God's anointed. David knew that God had anointed him as king, but he was going to let God work out God's way and God's will and God's own time. He wasn't after Saul. You remember Saul's raging madness, and David would play the instruments. And Saul even hurled a javelin at his own son, Jonathan, and he hurled a spear at David. Besides, you remember the song of the women. David had won over the women with the success of his bloody battles, and as they returned from war against the Philistines, The women sang out in the streets and danced to the tambourine. The Saul has slain his thousands, but David has slain his ten thousands. Saul heard the song. What's that? What the lady singing? I have a mere thousand? And David, ten thousand, he asked. In fact, the writer tells us of the Samuel story from that day on that Saul looked upon David with green, green eyes. And so, being threatened by David, the slayer, the giant, Saul goes after him with his polished army and, and David with his ragtag group of misfits who were ill-equipped with sticks. Saul's army with all the armor chases him way up high to where only the goats dare go. One time David's in the Injeti. He's way, way back in the mouth of the cave. And Saul comes into the cave. David's men say, here's your chance. God has, can't you see what's happening here, David? God has delivered him to you. Kill him and be king. David says, I will not touch the Lord's anointed. So he cuts off the corner of the garment of Saul and later shows him, I could have, but I didn't. You are my king. You are God's anointed. Upon escaping death by Saul, there's deliverance at the hand of God. And imagine that Saul has 
been trying to capture David, and David stops and writes this song, even as once more Saul has taken a, a blind turn directed by God, and David and his ragtag men are set free. And so he begins to sing about the deliverance from God. Look at verses 1 through 3. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. What a profound beginning statement. I love you, O Lord. What a beginning to this song with an unusual verb for love, but, but one that indicates intimacy in his relationship with God. I love you, O Yahweh. That intimacy arose from the clear and constant awareness of God's companionship. The first thing I want you to see this morning in verses 1 through 3 is God is worthy of praise. Number one, God is worthy of our praise. God for David is the rock, the cave in which he takes a fortress. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge. I will call upon the Lord for he is worthy to be praised. More than once in this song, David wants you to know God is worthy of your praise. I hope you're here this morning in this sacred space because you've arrived to sing praises to God. I hope you have come this morning for the primary reason of worshiping the one who made you and saved you and sustained you. I pray that you have joined your voice with our voices already in worship and you have said to God that he is glorious and magnificent and unbelievable and powerful and loving and caring and God above all else is absolutely worthy of the best of our praise. Now, I know there's a lot of reasons you might be here today. But I hope you're with God's people in God's house on God's day because you know you, you worship a God who is worthy. You've called time out in a busy week to stop whatever you're doing and to show up here in this place with this people to turn your attention upward and say, you are worthy. I love you. You are worthy. Already in our offering, he's also worthy of our gifts. Our offering is nothing more than an act of worship. We bring the tithe to God because God is worthy, and we acknowledge that his hand is in all that we earn. It is obedience. To tithe is to worship, and not to tithe is to refuse that worship. It is true that God deserves our worship of our gifts and worship of our tongues. But I want you to hear me say this. As C.S. Lewis once wrote, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. 
A man can no more diminish the glory of God by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can darken the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the wall of his cell. When you do not worship, you do not diminish the glory of God. You diminish yourself. When you do not worship, you do not diminish the glory of God. You diminish yourself. So God is wonderful and worthy to be praised. Secondly, God hears the prayers of his people. God hears the prayers of his people. Look at verse 4. The cords, now, now build this image in your mind. The cords of death encompass me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of death, or Sheol, surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord, and I cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of the temple, and my cry for help before him came into his ears. The description here is one of being drawn in by death. The cords, the snares, the underworld, the netherworld is drawing David below to death and destruction. But not only did David cry out to God, but God has ears and God hears the cries of his people. He heard my voice. He heard my cry. It went into his ears, David said. God is not a a deaf idol carved by the hands of humanity. Rather, he has ears and he responds in Psalm 10. David says, Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble and you will cause your ear, O God, to hear. Of all the comforts you have in this life, surely there's no other comfort than knowing that you worship a God that when you cry out, that God has ears to hear. Sometimes I don't hear. Sometimes I am at my limit. You ever been there? All the talking, you're tired of talking, and actually the older I get, the more I like quiet. I wasn't quiet at all when I was younger, but quiet is an attribute that has gained a lot of popularity with me. It was just a few weeks ago I was on a plane, and the the back third of the plane, there was a gentleman who realized he had a captive audience. And so at the top of his lungs, from the time we know before we took off till the time we deboarded the plane, he told us his whole life story from birth to the present. And I can't imagine he left anything out in his story. Now, God is a gracious God, and I was not seated right beside him, so I didn't have to act interested. But that poor guy beside him had to nod and uh-huh for about three hours of a flight. Everybody else immediately put on the headphones and put on their, their mask and tried to close their eyes so they wouldn't hear. It wasn't going to stop him a bit. And the minute the plane landed, he had the gall to say out loud, well, I hope I haven't talked too much. It was like being stuck in the old airplane movie. You know, the guy just wouldn't shut up. I could not have heard him for three hours. But God could. God has ears. There are no limits. And with all of our voices, he knows us individually. And God listens to the cries 
of his people. Your ears can only last so long. Think about that, mamas. But God's ears gladly hear every utterance. Every time I speak to God, he's attentive. He doesn't sleep. He doesn't slumber. He's always there, always listening, always caring, always attentive. I don't know your hardship today. Looking for employment, uncertainty at work, uncertainty in a relationship, maybe divorce seems to be looming. Maybe sickness is in your family and hospice care is there and death seems to be sure. I don't know this morning what would cause your heart to come into God's house and to look upward and to cry out to him, but I can let you know by the testimony of David that God has ears to hear the cries of his people. Here's the third thing I want you to see. God is powerful in response. God is powerful in response, verses 7 through 15. David surrounded by the cords of death, by the powers of the netherworld, but he calls upon God and God hears. But not only does God hear, God responds in a big way. The help of God for our individual needs is like the Amazon River being directed to water a single daisy. God cares and God responds. Look at verse 7. The earth shook and quaked. The foundations of the mountains were trembling and were shaken. Because he was angry, smoke went up from his nostrils and fire from his mouth devoured. Coals were kindled by it. He bowed the heavens also and came down with thick darkness under his feet. He rode upon a cherub and flew and he sped upon the wings of the wind. He made darkness his hiding place, his canopy around him, darkness of waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, he passed his thick clouds, hailstones and coals of fire. The Lord also thundered in the heavens. And the Most High uttered his voice and hailstones and coals of fire. He sent out arrows and he scattered them. And lightning flashes in abundance and routed them. The channels of the water appeared. The foundations of the earth were laid bare at your rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of the breath of your nostrils. Wow. Not only does God hear, God responds. We have this description of God in all of his grandeur, in all of his glory, in all of his splendor. It's a picture of God. It's a picture of power. It's a picture of a judge and a warrior that makes right the wrong. It's hard to image God in our minds, isn't it? Some of you are old enough to remember the old Art Linkletter show. Small boy was drawing a picture and Linkletter asked him what he was drawing and he said he was drawing a picture of God and Linkletter told him, well, nobody really knows what God looks like. And the little boy replied, well, they will in a few minutes when I'm through with <laughs> my picture. I'm not that confident about my ability to image God, so I'm going to take the image of David and the psalmist. This scene is on a scale of the Titanic. God stands in strange contrast to the small human figures of the singer David. This is a theophany, an image of God. 
It's the image of the Red Sea. We have clouds and fire and water drawing boundaries. It is the image of Mount Sinai where there's smoke and thunder and quaking of the earth. The mountains are trembling and fire when God comes down to give God's word. It's the smoke of Isaiah 6-4 dramatizes the anger of God at sin. The nostrils in Hebrew are the organs of anger. God blasts his nostrils like a bull. Is the image of divine jealousy in Deuteronomy 4 of intolerance. The coals are rained down from God's chariot throne on the doomed city of Ezekiel, Ezekiel 10.2. The storm approaches and darkens and finally unleashes itself. And in verse 9, he made the heavens bow. The cherub in verse 10 are an image of the inviolable holiness of God. As they're on the Ark of the Covenant, the seat there, they represent God's holiness. As they gather in heaven and they sing without ceasing, holy, 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 the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. In the midst of this thundering God with blasting nostrils, casting down the lightning bolts, God in this passage leaves the temple to hear the song of David. Upon his arrival, he thunders forth protecting David. There's a fourth thing I want you to see. God delivers. Look at verse 16. God delivers, 16 through 19. He sent from on high, he took me, he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy and from those who hated me, for they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my stay. He brought me forth into a broader place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. Given the enormity and the size of this cosmic creator, we are surprised to find with David that he cares about the individual calamity of David. He cares about David's calamity, and he cares about your calamity too. We have difficulty in death and sickness and stress and hardship in every form. And we know that God is with us. And ultimately, in this life or the next, that God redeems us and restores as he is the God of the power of the resurrection of Jesus. Look at verse 36. You enlarge my steps under me, and my feet have not slipped, he said. And then verse 31 is probably my my favorite verse of all. For who is God but the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? If you don't gather this morning in this place to worship this God, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, what God would you worship? Who is Yahweh? Who is God but Yahweh? He's saying. I remember an account from the Gospels when Jesus has had a hard saying. And the, the people who might be falls of Jesus throw in the towel. Jesus has made it too hard and they walk away. And Jesus turns to the disciples and says, you going to walk too? And Peter says, to whom would we go? To whom would we go? 
Who, who, I ask you, who is God but our God? Who is God but Yahweh? I was reading an interesting comment this week by Miroslav Volf, a theology professor at Yale. This is profound, and he says, playing off of Pope Pius V of the 15th century. To say there are several God, gods implies a contradiction, since it follows there from that none of them are gods, since each of them lacks a supreme glory which befits the God. You with me? If someone says to you there are several gods, then by definition, none of them is God. You with me? Because if there are several who can claim the title God, then no one has the supreme uniqueness to have the title of God. By definition, there can only be one who can be called God, or there is no God at all. I get tickled when someone tells me that they're an atheist. Let me translate that for you. I worship myself is what an atheist does. An atheist, everybody has a God. You can't say there is no God. There is something that is supreme to you. By definition, all things cannot be equally important to you. And so when someone says they're an atheist, the reality is he or she wants to worship himself or herself. You see that? They're no, no better than the idol makers of the Old Testament who carved a God with their own hands and propped it up and said, now that's the size and the kind of God I want. That's my God. Everyone must worship a God. Or, or if someone says they're not an atheist, they do worship God, but not exactly the God of Scripture. What they're telling me is they want to reshape, remold, or make God into their image so they can bow down and worship Him. But once you have remade God to your manipulation, you no longer have Yahweh. You have something else that you have created. David dare not try to shape or form the God who tosses the lightning, causes the earth to quake, the mountains to shake, who blasts out anger from his nostrils and sends down the hailstones and the coals of fire. God is God. Now you can choose not to worship him, but you're going to worship something and that something will not be supreme. Who is God but the Lord? God is worthy of our worship. God is worthy of your praise. The psalmist says more than once, I will call upon the name of the Lord who is worthy to be praised. I'll finish how I began. How big is the God that you worship? Have you tried to cut him down to size? Have you tried to mold him and make him other than the God revealed in Scripture? Have you tried to form him in a way that's most perfect for you. God is creator, and we are creation. 
God will not be formed by human hands. But the God who is supreme is worthy of your praise. He hears the cries of your soul. He's powerful and he responds. Let us pray. Oh God, this morning we're reminded of the enormity, the holiness, the grandeur, the majesty, the otherness, the sacredness, the wisdom that you hold. You're so big and we're so small. Thank you for those who've come today. So many other things they could be doing, but they halted the, all those other things and came here to this sacred space to look to you and say, with the voices of your people, you are worthy. Maybe there's one this morning who needs to come and profess you in all your majesty through the humbleness of your son Jesus, his crucifixion and resurrection. Maybe today is her day or his day, or maybe there are others to come and be a part of this great congregation, oh God. Should your spirit lead, may we have the courage to respond. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.